Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And welcome to the Courtney Turner Podcast. I'm your host, Courtney, and I'm super passionate about moving and thinking. On this show, we are going to dive into all things health, fitness, personal development, lifestyle, and political sociocultural. I've always been fascinated by people, and I love learning from the experiences and stories of others. This has been a treat for me, and I hope this is enjoyable and useful for you. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or any way that I can make this a better experience for you, please don't hesitate to reach out. Hello, welcome to the Courtney Turner Podcast. I am here today with Rob Wolf. I am super excited to have him here today. He is pretty much a renaissance man, a former biochemistry researcher, a multiple time author, a super athlete, and kind of versed on just all things that I'm super passionate about. So I'm very excited to have you here today. How are you doing today? Really well. Thank you. That is a huge honor to be on your show. <laughs> thank you. So he's also the founder of Element, which I have been using for years. I'm a huge, huge oh, fan. Nice. Yeah. So maybe we can start there because I feel like that's a huge, huge myth for a lot of people. Uh, you know, people are always talking about how you should limit your salt intake. And I, my, one of my ex-boyfriends used to tease me. He's like, I, I buy you these nice things and really I should just buy you a salt lick. That would be what would make you really happy. <laughs> I'm like saltaholic. So yeah. And people are always like, you should really wash it with the salt. I'm like, no, I like my salt. So why do people think salt is so terrible? And why is it? Not terrible, so so much so that you would invent a product to help people get more of it. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. It's kind of a guilt by association story. And uh, the biggest killer of human beings right now is cardiovascular disease. And one of the primary drivers of cardiovascular disease is hypertension. It's high blood pressure. Sure. And part of high blood pressure is a mechanism whereby the body retains excess sodium and then retains excess water and it makes the blood pressure go up. So that all seems like super cut and dry direct, like that's all, all well understood. The bugger about the whole thing though, there've been fantastic studies over decades where they put folks on low or no sodium diets mm -hmm. and their blood pressure doesn't really go down is the thing because sodium is a bystander. It's not the cause of this problem. The cause of the hypertension, the high blood pressure is insulin resistance, which when we become insulin resistant, we tend to see elevated insulin levels. Insulin is a hormone that helps us regulate a, a host of different things, but carbohydrate and, and uh, electrolyte metabolism is some of the big things that insulin controls. And when insulin is elevated, the kidneys produce another hormone in excess amounts called aldosterone, and aldosterone causes the body to retain sodium. So this is where when people go on a lower carb diet or really if they just start cleaning up their diet at all, they tend mm -hmm. to lose weight. They will pee like crazy for like mm -hmm. a week or two and their blood pressure comes down. And so 
again, like the, the, uh, there is absolutely a problem with hypertension. Hypertension is a major risk factor for cardiovascular disease. There's no doubt about that. But the thing is, it's just low sodium diets don't actually fix the problem. When they put people on low sodium diets, it doesn't really bring the blood pressure down that much. It brings it down a little bit. But it, it's pretty unimpressive. But when we get people metabolically healthy, it really dramatically improves their blood pressure. And for someone like yourself, who is lean, metabolically healthy, active, mm -hmm. you live in Tennessee now, which is, I hear, pretty damn hot and humid most of the year. Yeah. <laughs> All of those things start factoring into a really profound need for more sodium than what we are, are generally uh, recommended to consume. The medical recommendations are less than two grams of sodium a day, 2,000 milligrams of sodium per day. Um, when we look at all-cause mortality... Uh, what we find is in a general population, about five grams of sodium per day is the sweet spot for like a general sedentary population where we see the lowest all-cause mortality. Super low sodium um, causes more, it appears to be correlated with more disease and death. Super high sodium seems to be more correlated with disease and death. But what's interesting is the low sodium group, it's much more dangerous than the higher sodium group. So you have to get up to eight to 10 grams of sodium per day to be as at risk of, of you know, all-cause mortality problems as two grams of sodium per day. So it's actually more dangerous to be uh, too low in sodium right. than too high in sodium. And I guess one final piece to this story is that there is a reality that 80, 85% of the sodium that people consume in westernized uh, countries mm -hmm. comes from highly processed food. And yeah. nobody is arguing that highly processed food is is good for you. But, <laughs> no. the, you know, it, it, it's kind of the root cause of so many of the problems that we have. But mm -hmm. if people start moving away from a highly processed diet to a minimally processed whole food diet, their sodium intake plummets. And what, what we find interestingly is, is as people change their diet, it doesn't matter whether it's paleo or low carb or vegan or what have you, when they get metabolically healthy, they typically need more sodium. And that's kind of where, you know, we, we saw this issue, gosh, about six years ago, I guess. And I, I um, you, you know, really became profoundly aware of how critically important sodium was to, um, athletes in particular, but also uh, folks in kind of low carb environments. But then we started seeing all these applications with like police, military and fire, um, mm -hmm. breastfeeding moms, uh, this this uh, condition called POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. It's just kind of gone like wildfire. And so, it, you know, we're very fortunate. Uh, Element is one of, if not the fastest growing health and wellness company in the world currently. Like we're just really, awesome. really lucky. And part of the Genesis story is but before we even had an idea of a business, we just did a free downloadable guide about how to make your own electrolyte brew at home. And we oh, still yeah. have that up. If you go to drinkelement.com forward slash homebrew, you can see the original homebrew recipe plus all the other recipes that we have developed over time. So we started out as a freemium item, kind of like, you know, Linux or something like that, where it's like, okay. hey, just drink pickle juice, you know, mm. uh, mix up this this free uh, you know, I mean, relatively free, you know, here's here's our recommendation for how to make your own um, electrolyte brew at home. Within six months of releasing that, we had over a half million downloads of this guide. 
and wow. all of this crazy feedback, you know, people just raving about, oh man, my recovery is better. If they were tracking heart rate variability, their HRV scores improved, their sleep mm. improved, their recovery improved, you know, all these great benefits. But then folks would lament, they're like, hey, um, you know, if I travel, when I'm traveling with three bags of white powder, you know, the sodium chloride, <laughs> the potassium chloride, and the magnesium citrate, they're like, TSA doesn't like that. So could no. you guys think about, you know, having some sort of a stick pack type deal? And that was the whole genesis of the business. Like we didn't sit down and say, oh, we're going to make an electrolyte product. We right. we did a free downloadable guide. That guide really helped a ton of people and went like wildfire. And mm-hmm. then the folks that use the downloadable guide to make their own homebrew, they said, hey, why don't you guys think about making a convenient like stick pack kind of thing? And that was the whole whole genesis for the entire business now. Wow, that's amazing. So, yeah, so, it's pretty cool. I'll, yeah, it's really cool. So uh, there's we can have one thanks to TSA because there's not much. <laughs> I did one good thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I had a, I had a body cavity search that was that was kind of take your breath away once. You know, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah I, I always usually have to pay good I, money for stuff like that too. So yeah, <laughs> right? I, right. I always say like, and I actually say this at TSA, and I you know kind of gauge the responses. I'm like, you know, when did like being molested become just perfectly okay with everyone you know it's like nobody says anything you just walk through right. and you get like full pat downs and yeah that's just totally fine totally normal and when when they first started this after you know 2001 when they first started after 9-11 those scans you could see everything right right everything yeah. and no well, totally fine yeah i mean what you, you may as well just set, sell it on the internet you know <laughs> like I mean, I'm kidding, did. but it's yeah. right, right. I mean, Somebody you know, I, I'm kidding, but yeah. it's like nobody said anything, you know, just uh, okay, that's totally cool. Yeah, all right. Um, but well, all right, well, we can get to that stuff, but I want to hear about you. You mentioned insulin, and uh, I think that there's a lot of misconceptions about uh, insulin, insulin resistance, uh, what insulin does, and uh, metabolic health in general. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, it's a huge topic to to yeah. dig into. Um, sure. So when I he, here's and I don't know if this is a great example, but when I was a kid, I'm I'm fifty, almost fifty one now. Um, when I was a kid, there were two flavors of diabetes. There was childhood diabetes, which was an autoimmune condition, and you know, kids got it, and hopefully they lived long enough to be adults eventually. And then there was adult onset diabetes. That's what right. it was called. It was unheard of for a child to to develop what was type 2 diabetes, insulin-resistant diabetes. Right. Fast forward 30, 40 years, and now it is totally commonplace for children to have type 2 diabetes. The youngest documented case of type 2 diabetes is now 18 months old. What? Like, I, 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 it's it's just stunning, and um, you know, it's tragic. You, oh, it's it's uh, words fail me as yeah. to what it is. Yeah. You know, and I mean, this is this is a generation, generation and a half where the there was it was unheard of for a child, for a young person, to be insulin resistant to the point of being diabetic and now it's completely commonplace and wow. what what happens is uh, and it it's not always related to weight gain but in general people gain weight mm-hmm. to they they're overeating 
The, mm-hmm. We live in this world of what I what I are called hyper palatable foods, foods that are engineered so that they taste amazing. Like what's the Lay's potato chip tagline? Bet you can't eat just one. Right. And I'll take that bet all all goddamn day long. <laughs> you know, it's like uh, the, the house wins on on that all the time. Sure. But we live in this environment where we we have access to food that is super easy to get. It's super tasty. We don't exercise like we we probably should. We don't sleep like we should. And there's there's a bunch of different factors that goes into this. But totally. in general, people end up gaining more body weight than what they need. They don't have enough muscle mass to to help uh, stick glucose, blood sugar into the muscle instead of uh, going elsewhere. And right. over time, the body just kind of loses its ability to to handle insulin properly, and we we start becoming resistant to its effects. And the number of things that are linked to insulin resistance is just stunning, like uh, all kinds of reproductive issues, polycystic ovarian syndrome, you know, general infertility issues for both men and women, um, neurological conditions like Alzheimer's is called type three diabetes, diabetes of the brain, Uh, uh, you know, adult onset or or, uh, uh, the, the late onset dementia, I mean, on and on and on. It's, it's almost like pick your disease of choice. And, Mm -hmm. and there's, you know, a a linkage with, with insulin resistance and poor metabolic health. And about eight years ago, there was a study that, that suggested that fewer than 12% of Americans are what we would call metabolically healthy. Like they would be like our, our grandparents, you know, who were just full of piss and vinegar and were healthy mm-hmm. and and all that stuff because they mm-hmm. ate differently and slept differently and, you know, got out and exercised and whatnot. In just eight years, the, the most recent update on that suggests that fewer than 7% of Americans are metabolically healthy. And so it, it's less than seven, less than seven. Yeah. And, um, you know, so I, I've been beating this drum since around 2004 when I became aware of this, that the Congressional Budget Office has a projection that it, it, this is probably out of date now because of COVID and a host of other issues. But sure. it was projecting that by about 2035, 2038, the, the U.S. would spend as the equivalent of GDP per year dealing with diabetes-related issues, you know, all of these preventable diseases. What it didn't factor into this, though, and, and that stuff is very expensive to deal with, you know, like dialysis and, you know, diabetes meds and surgery and all that stuff. It's yeah. expensive to deal with, but you can give people a pill, you can give them a potion, you can cut off a toe and then a foot and then a leg and like you can manage that stuff. What people don't appreciate is that we have this tsunami of neurodegenerative disease caused by insulin resistance that's coming. And for neurodegenerative disease like Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, dementia, there are no drugs that that deal with this. Like uh, Pfizer and some of the the other big drug manufacturers, this was right before COVID hit. So it kind of it was a big deal, but it got lost in in the shuffle of COVID. But they abandoned all of their drug discovery in the Alzheimer's area because nothing was working, and because it's such a complex process. That they're like, we're never, we're, we're currently, we're not going to figure any of this stuff out. Here's why we're totally screwed on that front. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You can't medicate it. You can't just just kick the can down the road. What you have to do is 24-7 nursing care, ultimately, for these people. And we have tens of millions of people in queue heading into this neurodegenerative process. And I don't know what the hell we're going to do with that. Like, it, it is, we don't have the nursing care. We don't have the money to pay for the nursing care. We don't have the money to pay for the people who are going to be in the nursing care. Like it, it's um, it's going to be a bonafide disaster. And yeah. just I I know your show gets a little political, but if the uh, <laughs> if the more socialist leaning people are are in queue, uh-huh. then the way that that's going to get dealt with is people will hit some sort of a cognitive decline point, and then they're going to be euthanized because that's going to be the cheap way to to deal with that. The so. useless eaters, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I know that, that that was like all over the place, and I don't know if it really helped people understand <laughs> metabolic no, I, I think that it, much. I, but. <laughs> I, I think it did. Um, there, there are many different directions I'd like to go with it, but one of the things I'd like to uh, at least give people some kind of cues is, that, is to what they can do to mitigate that. Um, I think there's so much conflicting information about nutrition and health. Mm-hmm. I, it's one of the things people ask me all the time. And I'm like, well, I personally don't feel like I can give you just like a blanket. Oh, this this works for everyone. You know, eat this and you're good or do this exercise and you're great because I think there's bio individuality that comes into play. But I do think there are sure. general guidelines that. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, you know, for, for guidelines for me, what I've, I've found is that a very protein centric approach, like about a gram of protein per pound of body weight or mm-hmm. gram of protein per pound of ideal body weight. Like if you, if you're overweight and you feel like, you know, you're 200 pounds, you feel like your fighting weight would be 175, then you eat about 175 grams of protein per pound of body per day. Um, three meals, nothing crazy, three meals and a snack, uh, from there, I really do think that kind of carb capping is a great way to deal with things. Um, it's mm-hmm. not the only way to deal with things. So sure. maybe 25% of the population really legitimately does fantastically on high protein, low fat, higher carb. Like they, mm-hmm. they just crush it. My my wife is yeah. Italian and she does wonderfully on that. Yeah, I don't I like do this- well on low carb. Yeah, and, but I, I do great on low carb. I've okay. eaten low carb for 23 years and and like, uh, but a, a critical thing for people to understand, but my wife and I had over my, my left shoulders, this book wired to eat, which mm-hmm. was my, my second book that I wrote. And in that book, we had this thing called the seven day carb test where, and that was inspired by some research that came out of the Weizmann Institute in Israel where they fed people different meals and they had people wearing these uh, continuous glucose monitors so they could yeah. see what their blood sugar did. And what, yeah. what they found was crazy was that one person would respond to like white rice in a completely different way than they responded to bananas. And like you would respond differently than I responded. Nice. And my wife and I did these experiments where she would eat 50 grams of carbs from white rice. I would eat 50 grams of carbs from white rice. 
her blood sugar would go to like 115, 110. Mine yeah. went to 190. Mine was nearly diabetic levels. And I felt Whoa. like shit. You know, I felt terrible because my my blood sugar was awful. And this is something that out in the diet wars gets totally missed. Yeah. The person who, like you, like my wife, who eats a higher carb diet, your blood sugar response, though, looks great. My blood sugar response looks great so long as I don't eat a lot of carbs. If I eat a lot of carbs, I get a terrible, a super high blood sugar, you know, spike right. and then a crash. And on the crash, I get hungry and anxious and then I want to eat more food. And we get in this kind of downward spiral with that. So what in this this diet war thing, what I find the the like. It's like when you're, you're kids and you're playing hide and seek, there's like a, a home base, like a safe place to go to. Right. I feel like that kind of protein centric thing is a safe place to start, you know, and then yeah. we can iterate from there. And then you have to figure out, do you do better on carbs? Do you do better on, on more like fat, like nuts and olive oil mm. and stuff like that? Or do you do better kind of like a zone diet where you've got a little bit of a mix on, on both those kind of Mediterranean thing and a little bit of tinkering and experimentation will tell you what, what works. A, a good way to tell is you eat a meal and then like five hours later, six hours later, you could be hungry, but you're still functional. You're not mm -hmm. like hangry, melting right. down, like shaky. Right. If you're in that state, then you probably had too many carbs. You should probably eat uh, uh, fewer carbs, more fat, maybe a little more fiber. And then you find kind of a, a sweet spot. So you find your, pro, you, you know, you make sure to get hit your protein goal. Mm -hmm. And then you figure out if you do better on carbs or fat or a combo, and then you try to minimize processed foods as much as you can. And my, my greasy use car salesman pitch with that is do it for 30 days, see how you look, feel and perform. If you want to do some blood work before and afterwards, mm -hmm. then do that. And, and then you can get a sense of how all, all that stuff is working. And you do kind of need to do it more often than not. Like it, it, we, if we eat three meals a day, seven days a week, that's 21 meals you got to kind of be on point for 18 or 19 of those meals. If you're off point for 18 or 19 of those meals, then, you know, it, it's like it, it, if, uh, if you make a hundred grand a year, but you spend 115 grand a year, you're screwed. Like you're oh, going to yeah. go bankrupt, you, you know, and on this nutrition front, you got to eat a little bit healthier more often than, than not or you're right. going to have really serious problems and that there's just no there's no negotiating with the universe or any bullshit like that like you just got to do it there's just consequences attached to that and some of the consequences are that you're going to die young you're going to have a protracted illness process and um out of all this stuff like losing my marbles and being a, a burden on my family seems like the the worst possible thing I, I could imagine in that whole story. So it really, whatever side of the political divide you're on, like if you're a socialist, <laughs> you should be healthy. So you're not a burden on society. If you're a conservative, yeah. you should be in good shape so that you're in fighting condition for you and your community. And, and it, you know, you take care of your own stuff. You have that personal accountability. When I meet chubby conservatives, it makes me want to knock their teeth out. Like I just can't, can't believe it. And particularly when they start bemoaning people who, who eat, well and exercise and stuff like that it's like give me a break man like if you got in a fight you would die if your car slid off of an icy road and you had to hike to safety you're gonna die you're gonna be animal food you know so sorry off, <laughs> off, off out in the weeds on that but yeah no 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 it, it's it's valid you know i i always say that the the best way to fight tyranny is to start with taking care of your own health 
Yeah. You know, the, the healthier we are, the less dependent we are on others. And that includes the state, the system, you know, and whatever it makes us less vulnerable and susceptible to whatever it is they're trying to sell us or poison us with. So well, the, the, the two primary risk factors of whether you lived or died from COVID was mm -hmm. age. Right. And the next one was metabolic health, period. Right. And right. the age you don't have control over, the metabolic health you have 100% control over. And that's one of the things not to, you know, uh, spin this out into a COVID discussion, but mm -hmm. there was not one bit of mainstream discussion around like, hey, guys, get metabolically healthy. And this is nothing new. We understood this about influenza for 20 years. People who right. are metabolically healthy do better with influenza, do better with any type of infectious disease then sure. people who are not metabolically healthy. And even if you're into getting a vaccine, even though that's a controversial topic, sure. if you want any given vaccine to work, metabolically healthy people get a better immune response from vaccines. Metabolically unhealthy people get a shitty immune response to vaccines. So whatever side of the divide you're on with that, like it, it's coming and going like good metabolic health is good for everybody and should have been one of the primary public health messages that that we had like this is an opportunity to get everybody healthy we've got all these other disease states that we know the chickens are going to come home to roost right. and we have this opportunity to be like hey folks we need to get healthy like uh, you know go for a walk lift some weights uh, modify the way you're eating get a buddy group together and we did none of that the the, the people on the fringes the people like myself and yourself mm -hmm. Out on the periphery were saying hey get healthy do do things to take care of yourself but there wasn't yeah. a single thing that came like NIH, NIAID that said, get metabolically healthy. And here's what metabolic health is, you know, and here are three different options, paleo, vegan, Mediterranean, pick one and do it, you know, nothing. Yeah. 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 Um, well, yeah, there's so much there. Um, when you're talking, right? I'm like, wait, which direction should we go? I'm a house of fire today. I did my cardio and drank some coffee. So yeah. Awesome. I love it. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think that's so true. I, I wouldn't expect it from them because I don't think that they they really have our health, you know, uh, at heart, you know, the interest of our health at heart. But what you're talking about, you, you had mentioned paleo, vegan, uh, and then what was the other one? Mediterranean. Said? Mediterranean. So yeah. what are your thoughts on all three of those? Because I think that's another place where people argue a lot. <laughs> oh, man, it, it, it is religious factions, you know. Oh, yeah. um, my orientation personally is more this kind of paleo diet thing which which mm -hmm. uh is just kind of protein centric whole right. foods tends to minimize uh grains and whatnot and a lot of my orientation when i was a, a research biochemist i i was really looking at cancer and autoimmune related issues yeah and i have autoimmune issues i mm. almost died from ulcerative colitis Wow. I don't know if people can see, but you see that knuckle yeah. versus that knuckle. I have rheumatoid arthritis, which I've managed in large part through diet for the last 23 years. And um, so depending on what you have going on, uh, I think in general, if people just are eating food that looks like food, you know, mm -hmm. that's something that our grandparents would have recognized as food. They're going to be doing a hundred times better than what they're doing in the the standard, you know, uh, eating out of boxes and bags and and you know uh, order out food and whatnot. Sure. When you start having more layered, nuanced health issues, like I've got some gut issues, I have some autoimmune issues, um, I have this thing called essential tremor syndrome, which I I have to manage with a ketogenic diet. So I have to oh, eat wow. gluten free because I have celiac. 
I have some other gut issues and some autoimmune issues. So I'm in a really narrow track. I don't wish that upon anybody other than if people have some really complex health issues and they want an mm -hmm. option with that. Um, the vegan thing, I, I think gets, it can be an improvement for some people, but I also don't, it, it, you know, it's understood that you can't eat that way long-term without supplementing or you will die from nutrient deficiencies. That That's sure. a thing. Um, an ass-chapping part for me about the vegan kind of movement is that there are all these claims that like, you know, uh, cows uh, belching methane are going to destroy the environment. And that's the other book over my shoulder called Sacred Cow, where we yeah. look at the health, environmental and ethical considerations of a meat inclusive food system. And I, I think it's absolute bollocks to blame animal husbandry for the bulk of, of, you know, climate change concerns and all that type of stuff. And if you really do care about climate change, and I have some, I have a nuanced enough look at climate change that I usually mm -hmm. piss off both conservatives and, and <laughs> progressives. So, which tells me I'm probably doing something right there, but <laughs> right, right. Uh, if you really are concerned about it, then maybe you should focus on the stuff that is really a factor mm -hmm. and animal husbandry is not the factor it is i, not I think people should look at some geoengineering that would be a really good place to start with if you're concerned well, about yeah yeah hopefully they don't screw that up because a warmer planet is a lot easier to live on than during an ice age and it wouldn't be hard to turn the planet into a snowball so exactly yeah, yeah. so yeah. what are can you uh you know i i I would advise people to read your book, but can you give us some cliff notes on what is wrong about the vegan argument and how it supposedly saves the environment and is more ethical? So they usually will say that a vegan diet is superior with regards to health, and they will cite mm -hmm. things like the Seventh-day Adventist studies where yep. Seventh-day Adventists relative to in the United States, relative to the standard population, live longer, healthier lives. That is without a doubt true. Sure. Until you compare the Seventh-day Adventists to Mormons, who also have a religious faith, also mm -hmm. don't drink a lot of alcohol, mm -hmm. tend to have a healthy lifestyle, and Mormons eat a mixed diet that includes meat, and they mm -hmm. live just as long, just as healthy as Seventh-day Adventists, and they eat a meat-centric diet. In right. Europe, or not a meat-centric diet, but a meat-inclusive diet, right. in Europe, where people generally eat better than Americans— Sure. Seventh-day Adventists live no longer than anybody else. So like this, this health claim just, just falls flat when you really get in and scrutinize it. Mm -hmm. There are claims around sustainability, uh, you know, like we allocate all these resources to grazing animals and that would be better served to feed humans. We don't have a problem producing calories at this point. Around <laughs> 2004, nobody's sure of the exact date. Mm -hmm. Around 2004, 2005, globally, more people began dying from chronic degenerative disease, from overeating, than from malnutrition, starvation, yeah. infectious disease, and whatnot. We produce about 50% more calories globally than what we consume. So the problem isn't producing calories. The pr problem is producing food that allows people to eat in a way that they're healthy. And so right. we, we don't just need feed. We don't need to look at humans like cattle that we just need some amount of feed to put down their pie holes. We need to feed people in a way that they're actually healthy. And for the first time in history, about a decade ago, um, height in the United States began going down. Average wow. life expectancy in the United States, like our the, the current younger generations are going to live less long 
than previous generations because of poor metabolic health and poor diet. This is the first time in history that this stuff has happened. So it, these claims around like, oh, we're, we're not going to be able to feed everybody on the planet. It's bullshit. Like we, we, our problem is that we overproduce food and we overproduce shitty food and we make it hyper palatable and people get metabolically sick from it. So that's mm -hmm. all a falsehood. And then this claim around, you know, cows produce all this methane, this is part of a carbon cycle. So in the atmosphere, we have carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. We have plants. Sunlight rains down on the earth, thankfully, and then these plants yeah. take in carbon dioxide. They turn that carbon dioxide either into cellulose or carbohydrates or proteins or fats. And mm -hmm. other animals eat those plants and then those animals either release that carbon dioxide as part of their metabolism, or sometimes part of that, the plants get broken down via bacterial fermentation in the mm. form of methane. And this happened, this is what termites do. This is what shellfish do. There's so many different animals that produce methane. And methane is about 10 times more potent of a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. But the thing is that methane only has about a 10 year half-life in the atmosphere and then ultraviolet radiation hits the methane and cleaves it into carbon dioxide and water. And then it's just back part of a cycle. Right. So the carbon the methane molecule that's in the atmosphere today was a carbon molecule days, weeks, months, or years previously. And it's all part of a cycle. And something that gets totally lost in all of this story is that two-thirds of the Earth's landmass is gr grassland. And it's amenable for nothing other than grass and raising animals that eat grass. Mm -hmm. And when you properly manage these areas, the grasslands actually store carbon underground. Like in in the past, the, the American plains were like 90 feet deep of topsoil. That, that topsoil has eroded over time because we mismanage this stuff. And wow. so not only are properly utilized grazing animals great for food, like they nutrient upcycle food and it's mm -hmm. it's nutritionally dense and people tend to not overeat when they eat adequate protein and all this stuff. But also it is a carbon sink. If you want to pull some carbon out of the atmosphere, grazing animals are a great way to do this. And we make food and we have decentralized economic infrastructure and on and on and on. And what's fascinating, Forbes did a, a great piece looking at veganism and they made the case that Veganism is the is a great friend of big pharma and big government because um, what it's pushing you towards is this centralized food system where like currently there are six companies that produce 95% of the food that's eaten on the planet. And and what they're recommending is that we all just abdicate our food sovereignty and just wait for these folks to feed us and water us and give us whatever lawn clippings they want to want to give to us. And that gets kind of political. It's not really scientific, but there's, it, it's um the book when I, I first turned it in sacred cow and my, my co-author Diana Rogers, and there is a film with it also, like if mm -hmm. people don't want to read a, a book, the, the film sacred cow is really good. Um, we were on Joe Rogan recently, and there's a clip where Joe asks us some really pointed questions around this. So if people looked up Rob Wolf, Joe Rogan, there's about a 30 minute clip where we discuss this stuff really well. Okay. And then at the end of that clip, um, there is uh, the two minute trailer for the film. And so it, it's a good intro for all this material. That's awesome. So then what are your thoughts on uh, things like the carnivore diet? 
That seems to be really trendy right now. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a great tool if that's what you need. You know, so I've migrated more that direction because of my my ulcerative colitis and rheumatoid mm. arthritis. Um, I still eat some fruit uh, and mm. uh, uh, I'll do a little bit of carrots and stuff like that. A little bit of parsnips. Like I I love meat, but yeah. eating an, a meat only diet, I think I would go crazy. And I yeah. although I've got some complex <laughs> health issues. Sure. Um, I'm still willing to maybe tinker with having a little bit of gut issues and still eat an apple every once in a while and stuff like right. that. Or there's some people like Michaela and Jordan Peterson mm -hmm. that, you, you know, I mean, Michaela Peterson was diagnosed with a uh, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. And I think by the age of 17, she had had four joint replacements and, yeah. and you know, all these neurological issues and everything. So my, I think there's a lot of hyperbole around the the carnivore diet. There's like a bunch yeah. of young jacked dudes who are like, yeah. oh, I'm going to get more jacked eating carnivore. And maybe you do, maybe you don't. I don't think it's the first place in nutritional tinkering that I would go for most people. Right. But if you have some complex gut autoimmune issues, if you have depression and you've tried all kinds of other things, like I, the, the way I would try it is something that looks like a paleo type diet mm -hmm. where it's pulling out the bulk of the grains and the sugars and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. If that doesn't work to the degree that you want, I would try something like a ketogenic diet, which is tightening up the carbohydrate intake. Mm -hmm. And if that doesn't work to the degree that you are happy, then look at some iteration of the carnivore diet. And, and then that way, and I would be really critical about how do you look? How do you feel? How do you perform? Um, because I see the same... Within vegan land, there are folks that feel good initially, and then a couple of weeks or months, years go by, and their health starts failing. And I've oh, seen right. the same thing happen in carnivore space, too, where sure. people are they're CrossFit games hopefuls, and they're just burning the candle at both ends, and they go zero carb, and they do okay for a couple of weeks, but then their hair starts falling out, they have no libido, and they're like, well, I don't know what's going wrong, and I'm like, eat a goddamn sweet potato, man. Like, you, you, you know, you you don't have autoimmune issues. You don't have all these other issues. You don't need to be that that strict. Um, right. So I, I ordered this stuff out based off of need. Like if you have some really complex health issues, then you might need to be much more stringent on the way that you're eating. And if mm -hmm. this is just a story of like, you got 10 or 15 pounds of extra weight that you're carrying, but you don't have depression, you don't have gut issues, you don't have autoimmune issues, just clean up your diet, you know, find some basic. And again, usually the best way to do that is to start with this protein centric approach and, and then go out from there. And go from there. Yeah. So when, uh, yeah, you were talking about like the super low carb um, and athletes. Yeah. What mm -hmm. I, I feel like there's a lot of, again, you know, there's always debates on this and, do do you think that athletes need more carbs or do you think that that's kind of just individual to the person? I think it's individual and individual both to the person and to the activity. So mm -hmm. where I've seen, and it makes sense metabolically, where I've yeah. seen really low carb diets, high fat diets shine is in these super long endeavors. So like Zach Bitter has set mm -hmm. uh, multiple world records for for 100 mile races like he has mm -hmm. the world record for the indoor 100 mile where he runes around a quarter mile track like 400 wow. times like my god like it, mentally you, that's just you, oh my the mental part is just like oh my goodness you i did know, the like, two two mile race in high school and just like going around and around that track i mean it was only eight times but it was like oh my god think about 400 times like right. damn you you want like the best 
like playlist in history for that yeah. that event, you know. But um, the longer an event is, the lower the intensity will be, and it tends to be more fat fueled. And so, for really long yeah. events, I, I see uh, low carb diets being good. But even then people will drop in carbohydrates strategically in these mm. events. And I think that that's something that gets missed. And even folks that are doing more high intensity type stuff, like, so like people doing say like a CrossFit games yeah. type, type deal. If you follow uh, NSCA guidelines, National Strength and Conditioning Association guidelines, ACSM, American Council of Sports Medicine guidelines, yeah. someone my size, 165, 170 pounds, they would say I need like 600 grams of carbs a day. Wow. Some people might, but a lot of people would probably do better at like 200 grams of carbs a day because they don't get the carbohydrate roller coaster and all that type of stuff. But what I might really benefit from is some pre and post workout carbs, sticking mm -hmm. the carbs right around the time that I'm training. Yeah. And then I'm kind of lower carb elsewhere. And this is where it becomes new nuanced. It's like, right. it, if I'm eating 200 grams of carbs versus 600 grams of carbs, that's three times less. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's much lower carb, but it's not low carb. No, when when somebody sure. does a ketogenic diet for like epilepsy, they're eating 30 grams of carbs a day max. But that's right. an entirely different application than an athlete that's just trying to get better blood glucose control and doing carb. You, the, the danger is that, the, you know, an ass kicking female athlete, they, they go 30 grams of carbs and they're doing all these workouts. They lose their cycle, their hair starts falling out. They can't even remember the last time they had like a libido. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know what's going wrong, you know, but but then they, they're like, I, I run this gym and I've had five clients lose 100 pounds doing a ketogenic diet. And it's like, yeah, they are not you. Like you are at the apex of athletic performance. We need to do something different. We need to do some targeted carbs. And maybe your total carb intake is 200 grams a day, but you're kind of targeting it around um athletic activities. So individual variation, uh, both genetically, gut mm -hmm. microbiome, but then also the activity level is a big factor. I, I will say this for mm -hmm. people who have shift work, it really makes it hard. Police, military, fire, um, medical, new parents, anybody mm -hmm. who has disturbed sleep. Sure. When you don't sleep properly, you become insulin resistant because of the lack of sleep. And I will sure. say that if you were sleep deprived, a low carb diet is sometimes the only lever you've got left yeah. to play with because you will not respond favorably to the, the carbohydrates at, at the same level. So like if you're used to running good at 200 grams of carbs a day, and now you have a new baby or you're, you're, you went from day shift as a cop to night shift as a cop, you may need to drop your carbs down to 50 to 100 grams of, of carbs a day and stick it mainly around workouts to be able to, to maintain same. So this is where, like when people become religiously dogmatic about nutrition, yeah, we have these big picture concepts to try to just get people moving in a direction. Right. But then when we auger down, like it gets real specific about what your needs are in, in that given situation. Yeah, absolutely. You brought up uh, like hormonal health a few times and I feel like there is like a, a, a 
if there's a pandemic, it, it is a pandemic of hormonal health. I think, you know, both for men and women, I mean, mm-hmm. we're seeing fertility rates are just plummeting. plummeting. Uh, you know, men are having low testosterone and women are having, you know, all sorts of, uh, you know, estrogen dominance seems to be a problem mm-hmm. for both. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah. So do you have thoughts on how nutrition plays a role in that and what what's going on with all of that? Yeah, you know, I, I, it, there's a lot there, but a yeah. sp- simple mechanism is that when people, whether male or female, carry excess body fat. So something that folks don't appreciate is that both men and women, the dominant sex hormone is testosterone. Mm -hmm. Women have more testosterone than estrogen, just the way that it's reported on lab values. It's reported in different units. So it looks like they have more estrogen, but they don't. But what happens, the, the body, interestingly, though, does not track testosterone. It tracks estrogen. Mm-hmm. What happens is the body causes the uh, individuals generally to release testosterone. It's not 100% the case with, with women, but a, a significant amount of their estrogen pool happens this way too. And then testosterone interacts with an enzyme in our adipose tissue, our fat tissue called aromatase, mm-hmm. and it converts the est- the testosterone into estrogen. And there's a, an appropriate level for that to happen, both for mm-hmm. men and women. Uh, men, you don't want zero estrogen. Like you you will have bone issues. You won't have, like you need that proper estrogen actually for libido and on and on and on. There's mm-hmm. all these important things that you want the proper balance. If we become estrogen dominant, that is usually a consequence of too much body fat converting too much of our testosterone into estrogen. And this is where both, again, for men and women, they'll go to a doctor who doesn't know what they are doing, and Uh they'll do a blood test and like, oh, you're low testosterone. They'll give them a testosterone injection. And then what happens is it increases the level of estrogen because it converts the testosterone into estrogen. And then the brain senses, oh, we have too much estrogen. We need to suppress testosterone production. And then endogenous production drops, and it's this terrible downward spiral. Wow. The the flip side of this is that this is where if we get people lifting some weights, doing a little bit of low-level cardio, and modifying their diet, and usually a little bit of carbohydrate capping is amazing for this. When we lose body fat, we cease converting so much of our testosterone into estrogen. Then the estrogen dominance goes away, whether we're talking male or female, the brain is able to sense this stuff and it's like, okay, we're we're actually a little bit low in testosterone technically, you know, it's sensing okay. estrogen, we'll produce more. And then everything tends to normalize. This is where, I mean, when you look at um, better run anti-aging clinics and kind of hormone replacement clinics, yeah. they're just about universally fans of low-carb diets because it has this really disproportionate power in normalizing metabolic health and that metabolic health is is a big factor in getting hormones back back mm-hmm. in balance yeah yeah wow that's fascinating that so it's it has to do with the testosterone uh converting to estrogen and so yeah. and the brain recognition that that's really really interesting well um, and if the doctor isn't aware of that they will screw that up worse than what it was before you know, yeah, well, yeah, that's yeah. usually what you hear is, oh, you have low testosterone. I mean, for women, you know, you have low testosterone, they give you testosterone, they give you pills, whatever. And then they do the same thing with thyroid. I, you know, I tend to have a year towards low thyroid, hypothyroid. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so they were constantly wanting to give me some. And, you know, I finally caved at one point and I took it and you're just chasing the numbers. You yeah. know, my thyroid would go high and then it's low. And at some point I just took myself off because I was like, I'm going to, if my, my body's obviously trying to, you know, find homeostasis. And so maybe I should just let it try and find that instead right. of keep chasing it with altering the numbers on the medication and doing it synthetically. Fortunately, my thyroid, you know, and it still has that tendency, but if it's, if it, that's the tendency, then I think it's better to find lifestyle choices that'll help manage it than to keep cycling i mean i think eventually that's going to make it worse at, at a minimum i think you kind of have to button up the lifestyle stuff and then if you need to do something outside mm -hmm. yeah then you still you've fixed as many of the problems that you can so at least you're not then fighting poor metabolic health on top of right. you know maybe you've got a mild autoimmune thing going on with mm -hmm. the thyroid that's suppressing uh, uh yeah, yeah yeah so yeah i i'm i'm sure i have several but <laughs> yeah but it's it, I, I think a lot of the doctors don't know a lot of this stuff. So they're 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 trained to find a a pill for the ill as a, opposed to the root cause. So, you know, a lot of times like I, I don't necessarily know what it is that's causing or what, you know, the label would be. I just know that if they give one pill, it throws other things out of balance. Right. Yeah. Because and and uh, not to soapbox too hard, but like again, COVID was a great example yeah. of this. Um We've abdicated and destroyed the doctor-patient relationship such that medicine has become this formularic process where the doctor yeah. has maybe 15 minutes to work with you. Yeah. And they have to run run some tests, do a differential diagnosis. Hopefully, you fall within one, one bucket or another, and then that's it. But if you want some real time and some real customization, the doctor isn't even allowed to do that. Like a bunch of the stuff you've described doesn't actually fit into specific disease categorizations. Right. So then like, well, you don't have anything. You don't have problems. Yes. It's like, no, I absolutely know I have problems going on. And this is where there was a time when doctors practiced clinical medicine. Right. Okay. I, I think this is going on. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to tinker with some low dose T4 with you and mm -hmm. see how that does. Ah, oh, doc, yeah. I'm not feeling so good. It's not working. Okay, let's do a combination of T4, T3, and let's try a different source of it. Oh man, I'm feeling great. Okay, we'll keep going with that. That didn't fit any specific diet, like disease diagnosis. If if your thyroid wasn't so low that you are technically hypothyroid, right? you might not have fit that, but like you individually, like if you're in the low normal range, mm -hmm. For a population, that may be okay, but for you individually, you may be too low to feel optimal, to feel good. Right. And it, we've um, we've shot ourselves in the foot letting insurance companies dictate what medicine can be done. And uh, and again, kind of that progressive side of the house, which is so fascinating to me because historically, these are the people that didn't trust big pharma, big money, and all the rest of this stuff, and they have just completely abdicated all responsibility to these folks. It's like, oh, big brother, take care of me, you know, even yep. even on this medical side. And I, I I just can't figure out where the hell this came from. And it's, it seemed like it it just happened like that. It's astounding. It's really yeah. astounding. Uh, I think years and years of uh, propaganda worked on them, but, you know, it was a, I, I don't think it was a, uh, you know, one prong approach. I think it came from several angles and laid, laid right. the foundation over a long time, but and then, of course, COVID hit and they they went full force. But yeah. that's, that's kind of how I see it. 
So what are your thoughts on, I, I was a CrossFit coach for several years. I do CrossFit and, you know, people like to really, you know, trash CrossFit. <laughs> and I'm a huge fan of it. I really love it. Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of times it's not utilized in the best way because I, and my personal belief is that people, and, and I've seen this as a coach and I was a trainer and just in general population, people are so disconnected from their bodies in our mm -hmm. modern society that, you know, you get into an environment like CrossFit and it is a more competitive kind of, it's a high intensity type of a, you know, a sport. And I think people get into it and they get very caught up in that environment instead of listening to their bodies. And that's where right. things go wrong. It's not necessarily that CrossFit is inherently bad. So what are your thoughts? So I, I don't know if you know this about me, but I co-founded the first and fourth CrossFit affiliate gyms yeah. in the world. Yeah, yeah no, that, and, that's and, why uh, I wanted to hear your thoughts. Yeah. You know, <laughs> You couldn't find someone more excited about CrossFit than myself. And <laughs> I, I still am largely that way. But yeah, that Greg Glassman made this observation ages ago. He, he found this thing. It was from a military commander. But he, he, the, this guy said, men will kill for points. And clearly women will too. People will kill yeah, for points. Yeah. So <laughs> People get really competitive. <laughs> really, it, you write that name on the board. And people will do anything to not come in dead last. They will right. cheat. They will burn themselves out. And when we were running our our gym, the 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 rub that I have with CrossFit, as it's generally prescribed, is um, folks rely on on uh, scaling where they should be doing progression. If somebody yeah. doesn't know how to deadlift, they have no business doing any flavor of a clean whether it's a medicine ball or a dumbbell or, or whatever. And yeah. I think that folks would be really well served staying in a more aerobic paced sure. environment, the bulk of their training. And then we, you know, even when, when we train uh, MMA athletes and stuff like that and got, honestly, the people who are competing in CrossFit game stuff, they don't do wads year round like it looks like on the front page. They sure. do a lot of aerobic training, a lot of strength training. Then at the end, they bring it together and they peak for their for their their sport for the most part. So they do cycling, which is any athlete really does. Yeah, yeah. And you know, when we ran our gym, and it, at the time when when we were running it, we had a, a super thriving environment. Our coaches got paid well. They had 401ks, they had retirement, they had vacation. Right. Like we, here, here's a thing. We ran our gym in such a way that the gym was profitable and our coaches made a professional wage right. because we weren't idiots in the way that we trained our people. So and, our people didn't leave. And right. a lot of what we did, like we developed this, uh, we had 50% a, a of our revenue was personal training, which mm. most gyms don't do. Sure. We had a group class, but we, we had... You had to meet certain skill standards to get into the different classes. So we mm -hmm. had a general, we had a level one, a level two, and then a, a comp team. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, the, our people in the general, the, the only barbell movements that they saw was a back squat and a deadlift. They didn't power clean. They didn't snatch. And we didn't do anything like that. And and depending on what the person, oh, and then we developed this program called LIFT, Low Intensity Functional Training. And what it was, people would come in and we would do mobility work, we'd warm up, we'd do some strength work, and then we would do a metabolic circuit, but it was like walk down to the end of this fence that's 100 meters long, 70% effort run in, one trip up the rope, and then we would have eight bars on the floor with different weights for deadlift. 
three deadlifts at about 85% of your one rep max and repeat until we tell you to stop. No names on the board. We're not documenting jack shit. Right. And people would just go and they'd get a good workout. And then when we would see somebody, their form started breaking down, we're like, Charlie, you're done. Start start the cool down session. And then we had cool down A, we had A, B, C, and D. So we had four different cool down sequences of foam rolling, stretching and everything. Then Charlie would start cooling down and the next person would cool down. The next person would cool down and everybody's talking and they're, they're you know, busting each other's balls and everything. But they had all of the community they had yeah. all of the, 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 they got the intensity dose that was appropriate for them, them, but there wasn't the anxiety of having the name on the board and, 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 and doing, you know, a dude who can't press overhead, he has no business doing any flavor of a snatch, none, no. you know? No. And, and so these are the things that, that I have, uh, I take issue with around CrossFit and it, the, the thing about it is that if you just run your gym better, you will have a more profitable gym period. And this is the stuff that I can't, you know, when Greg Glassman was still in charge of CrossFit, what they didn't understand was the main resource they had were the gyms, but they weren't teaching the gyms to run efficiently and effectively and profitably. They're running it like a Ponzi scheme. And and this is the thing that really is frustrating to me. Everybody wins if if folks know how to run a better gym. Everybody wins. The gym, yeah. the gym does better. CrossFit HQ does better. Maybe the growth is a little bit slower, but it's sustainable. Like we saw a huge peak and then kind of a, a crash in CrossFit. And I don't know where the carrying capacity will be for CrossFit as we go forward. But the unfortunate thing is when you say CrossFit, it doesn't immediately imply quality. And it just does. Right. I know. You have to put in all these caveats and all these, you know, oh, well, we don't do it this way. And that was the huge opportunity that HQ missed. And even the current leadership, I don't feel like they they fully grok or understand what's what's going on. It's owned by a bunch of venture cap people. And I they're all nice people. I've met them, I've talked to them on the phone and everything, but they still just don't get it. Like it, it's a little bit maddening to me. So I love CrossFit. I think mm-hmm. it's great. It's incredibly powerful medicine, but like any strong medicine, you need to really understand how to dose it or you're going to hurt the patient. Yeah, absolutely. And I I guess, yeah, when I was saying people are so disconnected from their own bodies, like, I think that, you know, like anything, you don't go red line every single day. You you don't do that in anything, you know, but suddenly when it comes to CrossFit, it's like, oh, six, seven days a week, I should just go balls to the wall. Like, (laughs) And that's where as the coach, we have to figure out how to structure it so that our our clients are given space to not kill themselves because they won't self-regulate. And and that's where like that lift program is. So we developed that. We, we developed that first for, because there were people who couldn't afford personal training and mm-hmm. who were not ready for the regular class. Right. So we, it, and really, it was like we didn't have anybody in there initially that wasn't under the age of like 50. Oh, and wow. then a couple of our, our CrossFit Games athletes dropped in there. Just they're like, mm-hmm. oh, I couldn't make a different class. So they dropped in. They're like, this is awesome. It's actually yeah. fun. I don't I don't have the anxiety about like coming in last anymore. Right. And that became by by like a factor of three, our most popular program. And we wow. and we took took the names off the board, modified, structured the workout so that there was mobility, gymnastics, and barbell oriented strength that that moved people in a progression, and then a smartly constructed metabolic circuit 
that mm-hmm. we could control the intensity for people and we weren't gauging what their time was, what their score was. It was just get the dose that you need. And it was absolute magic. And, and again, it, it ended up being um, 60% of our total revenue was attributable to that one class because that's where two thirds of our clientele ended up. And we had people that they they never quit because there wasn't that like, I'm going to shit my pants coming to to class because I'm getting another beat down. But yet people wouldn't want to not go because that's what their community was. But we had to give people an out so they could get a workout in that wasn't like a near-death experience. And yeah, 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 it shouldn't be a near-death experience. It shouldn't be a near-death experience <laughs> all the time. Every once in a while, that's great. Every once yeah. in a while to figure out, you know, what what your your outer limits are and really sure. understand what what red line is. Absolutely, but that's literally like a once a month deal. You don't need it much more often than that. And then otherwise, you just kind of chipping away. You're getting stronger. You're getting more mobility. You're building that aerobic capacity. You're building movement capacity you're learning all these different skills and ways to move your body in different ways yeah 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 absolutely i yeah i know i absolutely think once a month sounds sounds right because i think it, it you, to learn what your limits are and to be able to push them and also to make progress i mean if you never yeah. test your limits you're probably never going to get anywhere near them right so right and right. so i think that's good especially for athletes to you know, test those and get close to those. So, uh, and people, uh, what I've always found is people are so much more capable than they think they are. Yeah. They can, yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's the most incredible thing to watch. I love seeing that, you know, people always come in they say, there's no way they can do something. I'm like, you can, you totally can. And usually they can way sooner than they expect to. So yeah. That's always really, really cool to watch. What are your thoughts on, uh, you know, you you were talking about even in that program, you did like a strength oriented uh, kind of component. And then you would also have the metabolic conditioning uh, piece in that class. So what are your thoughts on like the, you know, cardio aerobic versus uh, lifting weights and resistance training? I, I mean, we need it all, particularly yeah. as, as we age, um, yeah. probably the main, you, you know, the, it's not that this is where CrossFit mm-hmm. is fun because mm-hmm. it's it's like a game or it's like running an obstacle course. Like mm-hmm. you've got this stuff that you just need to to chip through. I really think um, if I were to optimize for kind of like health and longevity, yeah, I would separate those out. I would lift, you know, at a specific time. I would do cardio at a specific time. But man, yeah. that's boring. But so boring. It, it, yeah, it's super boring compared to. Um, I feel like I got better results together. that way, but yeah, yeah. it is not yeah. my favorite. Yeah, yeah, it, and it's not time efficient. You've got to block out the time for for the two of them. Um, the difference between them, I don't know how much difference it, it is versus stacking them together. You know, so if you're mm-hmm. time crunched, I think if if what you can do is like 400 meter run, five deadlifts, five pull ups, get as many rounds of that as you can in. 30 minutes and and wear a heart rate monitor and try to stay in that, you know, upper aerobic, you know, realm and not go too too um anaerobic, you know, too often right. in that. I think that the, and here's an interesting thing around that. You could do your 400 meter runs at kind of the same pace. And then the that deadlift, uh maybe week one, you do 135 pounds, week two, you do 140 pounds, week three, you do 145 pounds. On the pull-up, you could do three pull-ups each round, 
the next mm-hmm. week, four pull-ups each round. So you could do some linear progression within right. that. And maybe you run that for a month. And then it's a 200 meter run, front squat, push press. Or maybe you've got two days a week, two days a week. Here's kind right. of an interesting template. Uh, 400 meter run, deadlift, pull-up. And you progress the deadlift and the pull-up in some smart fashion. Right. And then the next workout is like a 500 meter row, front, uh, maybe back squat and standing press mm-hmm. and the same thing. So we've got horizontal press, horizontal row, pre, you know, hinge squat, all that type of stuff. And again, you progress that for a month and then you totally change the movements. So instead of a regular deadlift, it's a sumo deadlift. Instead of uh, a barbell press, it's a dumbbell press. Instead of um, push-ups, it's a bench press, you know, for vertical press versus horizontal press and all that stuff. That's a great workout. And you could linearly progress that, get stronger, make some little, uh, you know, improvements, and then you switch it up, you know, every two weeks, every three weeks, something like that. And I really think that there would be some huge magic there. Again, it's not quite as interesting as a brand new workout every single time, but man, for 30 minutes, that's really time efficient, you know, get get a little warm up and then, you know, moderate pace on your run five deadlifts, five pull-ups, keep going, you know, and, and you get 30 minutes of that, 35 minutes of that. Uh, uh, that's a, that's a great workout. And then you yeah. have a, a, a sister day where, you know, instead of a deadlift, it's a, a front squat or a, a back squat or maybe a, you know, a swing or a lunge, you know, we should have right. a lunging day in there. So maybe the next cycle you do lunging, front right. lunging, lateral lunging, like there's infinite variety there. Yeah. And we can linearly progress that get both strength and cardio at the same time. And that's long been my orientation is little micro adjustments in that instead mm-hmm. of, uh, uh, and especially for beginners where yeah. people don't have great form on deadlifts. They don't have great form on back squat and stuff like that. So or... get that exposure so that they get movement competency and you've got both time efficiency and you're getting your strength and cardio at the same time. Yeah, that's awesome. I like that. Yeah. What are your thoughts on the right now? Everybody's wearing the trackers and they're mm-hmm. you know, so the, the the arbitrary ten thousand steps a day, and I, yeah, I I don't know that the ten thousand steps a day really means all that right. much. Right. And the trackers, I like checking heart rate variability. Like I okay. I've been doing that, and I will wear a heart rate monitor when I I do my aerobic training. Yeah, but. I've also found that like, so I, I wore a aura ring for, for quite a while yeah. and the thing started kind of pissing me off because when I go to bed, I read and what it would do was ding me. It would penalize me because oh. it said you have sleep latency, you know, it's, you're taking too long to fall asleep Yeah. because I would lay there and it I'm thought angry. I was trying yeah. to go to bed and I wasn't. So then I would take the ring off while I'm reading and then put it back on when I would go to bed. And I'm like, ah, forget this, you know? And and so mine falls off when I sleep. So I don't wear it to sleep. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that those things are valuable, but I feel Mm -hmm. like they kind of burn through their utility in like two or three months. Like people learn everything they're going to get from it. And then it's kind of like, and and I, I do also though think that people will start doing dumb things to try to like optimize that score and that. Right. Yeah. 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 What, but what about for the steps? Cause I feel like people are very, uh, you know, people that 
And I think this is by design, you know, I, again, I, I personally think it's because they want to track your data, but, you know, they give you these incentives, right? And so they, yep. and people are at, like you see in CrossFit, people are very number oriented, they're goal oriented, and they get competitive. So they've given you this 10,000 steps a day. Now, I would argue most people benefit from any walking and <laughs> the very right. few people, you know, are moving enough at all. So that's a great, but I think then people get into, and what I've personally seen is that you know, people underestimate that walking is exercise and walking, mm -hmm. you know, it can really add up. And, you know, you get the, uh, you know, I feel like we have a lot of people on both ends of the spectrum. They're the people who don't move at all and they could really benefit right. from just like getting outside, seeing the sun once in a while, you know, yep. they would do them a world of good. And then you have the other people who are like, well, 10,000 steps a day are good. Then I should be getting 20,000 steps a day. Right. Right. And they don't realize that that's like, I mean, it ends up being cardio and there can be, you can be doing yourself a disservice. Diminishing returns on that. Yeah. yeah diminishing yeah. returns. Exactly. No, I, I've used a, a similar analogy. I say that there are folks that the only way to get them off the couch is to douse them with gasoline and set them on fire. And then right. the other folks, it's like, we need to hit them with a tranquilizer dart and be like, dude, calm down. Like you're good, you know? And right. You know, like Peter Atia has observed that there are people like him like if he's not wearing a blood glucose monitor, he mm -hmm. will cheat on his food because mm -hmm. right. uh, if, if he's wearing the glucose monitor every day, he downloads his data and he gets that beautiful line because he's eating a low carb diet. And yeah. if he cheats, he gets this spike and it screws up his numbers and it makes him crazy. So, you, you know, from a compliance perspective, like if it yeah. helps people on compliance, but I've seen it kind of almost 50 50 where it can foster as many bad habits as good habits, you know, like, yeah. um, I know people who would wear an aura ring and they would just start shaking their hand during what? the day while they're at the computer terminal to rack up the number. Now it is technically non-exercise movement. And I guess it's slightly beneficial, but they're just hacking it. It's like one, two, three. And, and it's like, Oh, I had 15,000 steps. And the person's like, are you masturbating over there? Or what are you doing? You know, and they're just shaking their hand to, to for the accelerometer and the aura ring to get a sense that they're moving. That's and so hilarious. people do like this, this is where people just start cheating things. I'm right. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. that's hilarious. Wow. <laughs> just shake, shake your hand and <laughs> rack up stuff. That's and count it as steps. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's, that's funny. Yeah. Um. So I wanted to talk about, uh, there, there were a couple of uh, nutrition things that I, I had forgotten to ask. And I wanted to ask the, the two big ones, I think, are seed oils. And people are starting to be much more aware of, of seed oils, but they're in everything. And I, mm -hmm. I, I've always been one, my dad, when, when I was growing up, my dad would call me Sally from when Harry met Sally, because, you know, I'm the annoying person who asked like everything before she right. ordered. Um, but I was always like that, you know? So, but now like, and I ask, and some restaurants, you know, will tell you, oh yeah, we use olive oil. And what I'll find out is no, it's really olive oil mixed with canola oil. And right. Right, it's, so it's, it's just kind of in everything. And you look in, I, you know, obviously I would encourage people to eat non-processed food, but like in every package, you know, it's hidden. I, I mean, I see it in supplements. I see it in like, you know, nutraceuticals. They'll say like sunflower oil. It's like, well, why is right. that in there? What, what is, why do I, I've even seen it in beef jerky. Why do we need sunflower oil in beef jerky? Like, yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it's funny. Um, I'm not entirely sure where I am with this stuff. And, okay, and I'm yeah. running a little, little, little short on time. So I'll, okay, I'll try we'll, to be we'll start wrapping up. concise on this. 
a good yeah. friend of mine, uh, Matt Lalonde, who is a Harvard PhD chemist, a long time ago, he made the case that the, the seed oil story really is significant if we don't have enough EPA, DHA in our body, the, the long chain omega-3 fats, basically from like fish okay. oil, although you get some out of like grass-fed beef and, and all that type of stuff. Sure. Basically, he was saying that if you have enough of that, the other doesn't really matter that much. If okay. you don't have enough of that, then these seed oils really end up affecting like the pro-inflammatory versus anti-inflammatory pathways. And, and for me, sure. that, that makes a lot of sense. Where I get a little bit like, again, I'm kind of in this spot where um, I end up making people on both sides of the seed oil debate a little bit annoyed, usually. Um, mm -hmm. So like sunflower oil is very, very low in omega-6. It's mainly monounsaturated fat. Right. Olive oil can vary in the amount of omega-6 that it contains from as low as 3% to as high as 20%. And this is extra virgin olive yeah, oil. Sure. Some olive oil can be shockingly high right. in, in yeah. omega-6. It just depends on the varieties. Sure. So people will get all panty twisted about like, oh, this has a high oleic uh, safflower oil or whatever. And it's like, okay, that's mainly oleic acid, the, the mononine a, a monounsaturated fat, mm -hmm. which right. everybody, vegan, paleo, everybody's like, that's good fat. Okay. Okay. And then it has less, it's understood to have fewer omega, uh, uh, less amounts of omega-6 fat than most olive oils. But yet people will get all kind of britches bunched about that high oleic safflower right. oil. So it's it's one of these things where I just don't get it. And then the, the bulk of what people are consuming these these seed oils in is still overall highly processed foods. It's usually mm -hmm. wrapped up in a bunch of like carbs and salt and sugar. Mm -hmm. And right. it's all presented in a way sure. that's really easy to overeat. Now, all of that said, I have a good friend, uh, Brian Curley, who's a physician and he is the the guy on, on Twitter, seed oil disrespector. And, and he's really gained some, some traction. He okay. has told me that he he has people that they 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 don't go paleo, they don't go low carb. They're still doing baked goods, but they use lard and butter instead mm -hmm. of their usual stuff, and okay. they see dramatic health improvements. Yeah, it doesn't entirely make sense to me, but I really trust Brian, and so I'm kind of like, right, oh, okay, maybe there's something to this, you know. So, so it's complex for me, like because yeah. again, like there are there are good fats, olive oil, sure, that are higher in omega-6 than bad fats, low oleic safflower oil. Right. And I'm kind of like, what the fuck's going on here? Like, I don't, as a biochemist, I don't, right. I don't get this, you know? And then there is kind of a reality that um, and epidemiology and correlative studies are really difficult to draw too much from, but like nut and seed consumption is super highly correlated with all kinds of beneficial disease states, you know, mm -hmm. disease outcomes. Sure. And all of these things have lots of omega-6 in them. Right. And I'm just like, I, so I'm not entirely sure. Like I, I don't, it's confusing to me. Like right. because people will draw these super strong lines in the sand, sure. it, but then they have, here's an exception, here's an exception, here's an exception. So what could be going on here is, uh, you know, something okay. like this wild card of, if you have enough omega-3s, long-chain omega-3s, right. maybe that is the determinant. And the rest of this stuff doesn't matter as much Sure. so long as you're topped off in EPA and DHA. 
because I've seen similar things like this where we think that it's an A or a B deal. Right. A and B don't matter unless C is one way or the other. And that's what makes things change. So our model is not accurate enough to describe what's going on. And that's where we get these um, paradoxes or, or things that don't really make sense. Or maybe I'm just not smart enough to understand the thing and I just don't have a, a, a full accounting of this. But it, it's perplexing to me. I don't, I don't have a satisfying answer or position on it one way or the other. A lot of things, you know, like carb capping and eating adequate protein, like Man, I'll, I'll 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 die on the hill of like eat a gram of protein per pound of body weight. You know, for right. almost anybody, like, I, I, very few exceptions. I don't see that being official, uh, being beneficial. But on this uh, seed oil thing, there's a lot of gray area for me. Like I just don't get a lot of the the pieces. And there are other people that never have taken a biochemistry class, and they're just totally fucking certain about what things are. And I'm like, <laughs> well, I'm glad you're certain because I'm sure as hell not. Like I I, I think I understand lipid metabolism way better than you do, but you're certain about this. So whatever, you know, I don't know what to tell you. The yeah. the DHEA and uh, uh, what was the other one? DHA and EPA DHA. So the, the EPA, elongated. DHA. Well, that actually makes yeah. a lot of sense though, because I feel like a lot of people are deficient in it. Absolutely. And, so, and the, and, uh, and that and was the, if you're deficient there and then it makes the pro-inflammatory effects of too much omega-6 manifest. Yeah. And that could make a lot of sense. And then, you know, within these, uh, say like Mediterranean cultures that eat a lot of nuts and seeds and they eat sardines and they get adequate EPA, DHA. Right. This is where there's like, in physics, there's a, it's really easy to understand two bodies orbiting each other. Like the, right, uh, sure. the, the orbital dynamics are really understood. When you get three bodies interacting with each other, the mathematics become untenable. Like you can't really predict what is happening. And so if right. we had a third factor in this thing, in addition to the, the okay, we've got omega-3s, we've got omega-6s, but what if the EPA DHA deficiency is really the driver of whether or not that goes pro-inflammatory versus anti-inflammatory? If you're not aware of that and you're only making it boil down to these two things, then you're you're operating with a poor model. It kind of goes back to like the uh, uh, you know methane release from animals. It's right. like, well, you don't have a complete model. You're you're working with incomplete modeling and incomplete you know data. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's really, really interesting. I know you're short on time. Do you have time for one more question? I, I'll i try to be concise. Okay. Yeah, make it yeah. concise. Um, I okay. saw a study on, uh, I think it was done like 50 or 60 years ago. And it was saying, you know, it was the comparison of obesity rates then versus today. And the rates were a lot lower then than they are today. Uh, but the caloric intake was actually minimally different. Have you seen this? And do you have thoughts on that? I've seen some stuff around that, but I've also seen uh, material that suggests that now we're eating two, three, 400 calories okay. a day more. So I see kind of back and forth on that. And oftentimes what people will try to say is that, and there may be some truth to this, like mm -hmm. our activity level may be less, maybe we've got some hormonal disruptors in, mm -hmm. in the whole story. Like they, and this is oftentimes where they will, they will say, well, it's the seed oils that are causing these mm -hmm. metabolic issues and all this type of stuff. I still think the simplest explanation is that we're just figuring out ways of overeating. And, and right. I've, I've seen reporting on both sides of this where people are like, no, man, we're reading too many, too many calories in total. And this is a, a funny aside where people will say it's mainly we're eating too much fat. 
the, you know, yeah. in the, the, the high carb versus the, you know, high fat kind of thing. But the funny thing is that when you look at that, we are eating more fat, but we're eating fat that is part of like corn chips and wheat crackers and stuff like that. We don't just scoop like corn oil into things. It's always part of like a carbohydrate matrix. So we're eating right. more of everything except right. protein generally, which we are eating less of. Yeah. Yeah, no, that that does make a lot of sense. Well, I I will let you go. I'm so appreciative of the time you've spent and all the wonderful knowledge you've imparted. If you have anything else you want to add and leave us with and definitely tell everybody where they can find you and your books and all your great work. Oh, no, I had a great time. If you want to do a round two, I'm I would happy love to bring it. down property values. So let, let's put that on the books and do another hey, one. This was okay, a, cool. let's a ton do of fun. Um, most of what I do is over at robwolf.com. And then I do a lot of writing for Element. And that's drinkelement.com. And we have a really solid blog over there that, that talks about mainly electrolytes, but also fasting and intermittent fasting and, and everything that kind of affects electrolytes. Awesome. All right. Well, we'll lock in part two. Thank you so much. Bye, Courtney. Take care. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.